Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Connection, where industry expert Doug Plucknett interviews global leaders from the maintenance and reliability industry. Each week, new leaders will join us with insights and tips to help you grow in your career, and they'll share a good story or two while they're at it as well. The Leadership Connection is produced by the industry's leading networking and learning community, Mobius Connect. Doug, over to you. Morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day it might be that you're tuning into this podcast. This is the Leadership Connection, and I am Doug Plucknut. Today, I have a very special guest, Drew Troyer. I've known Drew for, oh gosh, it's got to be going on 25 years now. Drew is a principal at T.A. Cook. Uh, he has a master's in little arts at the prestigious Harvard University, an MBA from uh, Oklahoma City University. He is the founding editor of the RAM Review and has published uh, hundreds of articles on on maintenance and reliability. Drew, how are you doing today? Great. How are you, Doug? Thank you. I'm doing pretty good. Can't complain. Well, so, thank you for uh, having me. Yeah, it's been a while since you and I have seen each other face to face. We used to see each other on the conference circuit uh, on a regular basis, and uh, now it seems like we just have uh, chats once in a while on Facebook or LinkedIn. So it's good to catch up with you. It's great catching up with you too. Yeah, I kind of miss those days. We had a lot of fun. So uh, prior to his work at, at TA Cook, Drew was the CEO of Noria, and so he's got really endless stories of, of helping clients with maintenance and reliability. Um, but I'm going to ask him more personal questions, really, on on uh, leadership and how he got started. Um, tell us a bit about your career, Drew, and your education and uh, where you come from, your background. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, of course, I'm a reliability engineer, and I got into uh, uh, the industry uh, because I was at Oklahoma State University, and uh, uh, Oklahoma State University is, is pretty well known for uh, at least at the time, uh, something called the Fluid Power Research Center. And the Fluid Power Research Center evaluated a lot of, uh, uh, evaluated a lot of uh, concepts related to contamination control. So how does contamination in a lubricant uh, affect the life of a bearing, a gearbox, a hydraulic pump, so on and so forth. And uh, so I was assigned to a research project supporting a little company in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they were developing a number of different instruments for evaluating contaminant levels in lubricants. Uh, uh, this little company uh, also created uh, what are called multi-pass filter test stands for determining uh, the beta rating on, on filters, so how efficient are filters because a lot of that work came out of Oklahoma State. So if you look at an ISO cleanliness code that came uh, on, a, on an oil analysis sample, that, that came out of Oklahoma State. Um, if you, you know, look at a beta rating on a filter, that came out of Oklahoma State. Uh, well, the founder of this, uh, this little technology company uh, was Jim Fitch. And uh, so we kind of hit it off. And so he actually hired me right out of school and uh, so I went to I went to work and have sort of been in this game ever since. Uh, we we did some things with technology and development, and that ultimately got sold to a company called Intech IRD, which ultimately uh, was acquired by Rockwell Automation. So at the point of, of transfer to Rockwell Automation, uh, Jim Fitch and I uh, formed Nori Corporation in 1998. <clears throat> And Nori Corporation specialized in 
lubrication, uh, oil analysis. Uh, I wrote, uh, I wrote, co-authored a book with Jim called Oil Analysis Basics, and I was pretty specialized in lubrication for a really long time. Uh, I was co-founder of the International Council for Machinery Lubrication, and uh, uh, they do a lot of certification for people who are machinery lubrication technicians and oil analysts and so on and so forth. So I was really focused on lubrication. Uh, and then around 2005, I kind of got bored with it. And I wanted to kind of go back to my reliability engineering roots. And so I developed a course called Plant Reliability in Dollars and Cents. And, and over time, I sort of migrated away from lubrication and in 2010 separated from from Noria, we kind of divided up some intellectual property and uh, so on and so forth. And you know, it was a great separation. In fact, last week I was at the Noria conference. It was great seeing everybody uh, at the Reliable Plant Conference. And since then, I have been focused on more strategic aspects of asset management and reliability engineering. However, around 2014, uh, I was actually working with one of my clients and trying to identify uh, what what I, I, I figured out a knack. I have a knack for determining how much asset management is worth. So if we were to transition from, say, the 25th percentile as asset managers, uh, what would be the economic impact of you know moving to the 75th percentile? But I can recall at some point. I was working with a client. We were doing very strategic asset management work. And I go through their plant, and what do I see? I see uh, clear signs of poor lubrication. I see fasteners that are loose. Uh, I see visible signs of misalignment on pulleys and things of that nature. So that inspired me in 2014 to go back, if you will, to my technical roots. And I created a new work stream, which was an educational course and then some associated consulting called uh, Focus on FLAB with Proactive and Precision Maintenance. And FLAB is an acronym for Fasteners, Lubrication, Alignment, and Balance. And, you know, from a mechanical and electrical perspective, if machines are properly fastened down, they're properly lubricated, they're aligned, and they're balanced, they're going to run a long time. So uh, since then, I've really been focused uh, on that initiative. Strangely, you mentioned uh, Harvard. Uh, I'm very environmentally oriented, so in 2018, I decided uh, I was going to get a degree in environmental sustainability. I selected Harvard, and I did that, and I'm hoping going forward, I can show some industry leadership in the area of sustainable manufacturing. So uh, currently, I do serve on the ASTM E60.13 Committee for Sustainable Manufacturing. Uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, in between, along the way, I picked up a Master of Business Administration, but that's my, uh, that's my 30 years in asset management in a nutshell, Doug. <laughs> well, that's a lot of stuff right there. Um, so, looking back on your career, you started, as you said, at, at Oklahoma State and, and, and helping out with research and study on contaminants, but when were you think you were first recognized as a leader? Was it before that or, or sometime afterwards? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, really, it's really hard to say. Uh, so I think, uh, I think I was probably initially recognized as a leader when I began publishing. Uh, and I've always been an, an, an ad, 
you know, an advocate of, of publishing. I'm, I'm a very avid uh, writer. And once, once I started uh, publishing, uh, I think my leadership became uh, recognized uh, more, more broadly. So this uh, probably is going to be a bit of a blast from the past, but I'm looking up right now in my office. I'm looking at, uh, I framed my first article. Uh, that was uh, 1993 in PPM technology. Do you remember that technology, Ron James publication, Doug? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was called Streamlining Oil Analysis with Field Testing. And once I started publishing, then I think my thoughts became more widely available. And I think at that point I was viewed as a technical leader. You know, leadership has, has, takes different forms. Uh, there's technical leadership, which is probably my strongest area of leadership because uh, I'm generally considered a technical expert in, in my area. Uh, but then there's, there's also organizational leadership. And I would say that my ability to inspire people uh, came along uh, a little bit later, you know. But as I developed myself as an educator, uh, it, it was, I'm going to say probably 1996, 1997, I, I would be educating primarily engineers, right? And the engineers would say, okay, all right, that's great. What we need you to do is tell that to our boss because we can't tell it. We, we can't say it that way. So I would say that that's probably uh, about the time frame at which I sort of transitioned from an industry participant to an industry leader. I'm going to say it's probably that 1997, 98, 99 time frame. That's interesting. You know, it's, it's one thing to teach people. It's another to get them to go out and do it. And that's, uh, that was kind of a uh, re reverse scenario for me. You know, I had uh, lots of success with working with groups when I was at Kodak and getting guys to go out and do things and, and, and going out and doing them with them. Right. And then, for me, it was a, a published article that got me recognized and then companies interested in calling and say, hey, can you come help us? And at that point in time, you're like, well, I, I don't really work as a consultant. I work, you know, I'm working at this company. I'm and a, then all I'm of a sudden, like, the, the yeah. light goes on and goes, oh, you know something. There's, there might be an opportunity there, right? So interesting because yeah. I, I don't know that I have my first article framed. I do know I have my first cover framed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was uh, uh, hanging up. And uh, it is uh, one of those things. Now, I can say that I've always considered myself to, uh, to be somebody that writes a lot until I look at you, right? And I go, there's nearly <laughs> monthly has something published, you know, whether it was uh, Reliable Plant or MRO Today going way back, Reliability Magazine and so on. Um, along with writing, I just want to see if this is true. This is a theory that I have. Uh, most writers are readers, right? So looking at that, is there anything that you've read, a book or something that you could recommend to our audience that you could say, boy, this is one that had a change in my career and my life? Gosh. Uh, so I am a very avid reader, uh, and uh, uh, there, there's, there, there's, there's so many books that have – have really changed my life. Uh, uh, gosh, uh, there's just too many. Uh, there's too many. Uh, you you mentioned. I mean, within our field, uh, I think probably the the two books that in, com 
in, you know, encapsulated what, what asset management is all about uh, was the book Uptime by John Dixon Campbell. And then you mentioned uh, prior to us starting, uh, you mentioned Ron Moore. Right. So uh, Ron Moore's uh, 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 book, gosh, uh, the, uh, the, the seminal book, uh, Making common sense, common practice. Making common sense, common practice. Uh, wow. But then I, I go back and you know there's there's uh, there's quite a number of, of books that uh, have really really inspired me in terms of of different aspects of asset management. So I probably should have had a a, a list of these books. So uh, what's going to happen is we're going to go through this and they're going to come to mind for me, but. Uh, uh, yeah, but within our space, I would say uh, Common Sense to Common Practice, Ron Moore, and Uptime by John Dixon Campbell, uh, probably as a young guy, uh, helped to shape me. So I came up starting with the really hardcore technical aspects of our field and then morphed into the, uh, I would say, more managerial-oriented uh, aspects of our field. Right. And we came into this business somewhere around the same time, at least I, um, you know, I came in around 2000, um, 1999, 2000. And I could say that uh, at that point in time, you know, we, we had Jack Nicholas and, and Ron Moore, and both of those guys were so approachable in terms of, you know, <laughs> sucking up and getting information Right, and and just having general conversations, sitting with somebody and 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 having a uh, whether you sat down with them at lunch or dinner or to have a beer at some point in time, they were so approachable. It was yeah. one of those things that uh, uh, a great time, and that's that's one of the the things that I know that you have that that same uh, mentality when you see people come up to you at conferences and shake your hand and spend time with them, and that's really what what makes uh, attending those so worthwhile today, right? Is, is Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, on, right? you, mentioned, you mentioned Jack Nicholas, and uh, uh, when I was still pretty early on, you know, this we're going back, you know, 20, 25 years here. Uh, Jack Nicholas, uh, one, one of the, you know, the godfathers of, of our, our field, there's absolutely no question. And when we say Jack Nicholas, for those who, who don't know, it's not the golfer, it's the, the asset management expert, Jack Nicholas. But he kind of took me uh, under his wing a little bit because uh, uh, he, he, he saw me, I think, I, I don't know if I delivered a presentation uh, or we just had a discussion. It's too long. But uh, I, I've always been a big advocate of, you know, procedure-based maintenance procedure-based asset management. I think that you've probably seen me preach about this more than once. And there's a reason for that. Uh, when you look at high reliability organizations, when you look at uh, organizations in the aviation industry, or you look at uh, a nuclear power plant, they're very procedure-driven. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Sully, but you know what a fantastic movie. Uh, you know, Sully, the guy who landed the A319, uh, in the in the Hudson River, and everybody walked away. I mean, yeah. miraculous. But when you look at the movie, when they're you know recreating what occurred in the cockpit, uh, you know when 
both engines went out because of bird strikes, which is a really random event. Uh, when both engines failed, the first thing Sully said was, what's our procedure for this? So when you look at high reliability organizations, uh, they tend to be very procedure driven. So I don't know, it was a conversation or something, but Jack and I published a few articles and gave some presentations on procedure-based maintenance. And I continue that today. You know, for instance, uh, when I look at, uh, you know, work plans for maintenance or operations or so on and so forth, I'm a real stickler for the fits, tolerances, quantities, and quality details. It's not enough to say tighten the bolt. I need to know what the torque is. It's not enough to say grease the bearing. I need to know what is the quantity. Uh, it's not enough to say check the pressure. I need to know what is acceptable. So Jack has been, he, would, he was a uh, real, uh, you know what, having somebody like him take you under his wing, uh, what it does is it gives you the confidence uh, to carry forward. And that confidence then, now at my age, enables me to take other people under my wing, I hope, and inspire them to do great things. And that's how we have generational improvement. But yeah, we were, uh, we, we had the benefit of uh, being uh, guided and mentored uh, by some, some, some pretty neat people. I mean, you mentioned Ron, you mentioned Jack, there's a host of others. All right, so looking at leadership, and I know that, uh, you know, being a CEO at one point, you had the you know, at least hire or promote people. What are the couple traits that you look for in leaders that, that are important? So uh, to me, the, the number one and the most important trait in a leader is passion about what you do. Uh, because if you don't have passion about what you do, then uh, you're an administrator, you're not a leader. Uh, it, to me, passion is 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 the most important property. property uh, you know, the the most important behavioral characteristic of a leader. The second is to recognize what you can't do, right? Uh, because what happens is when you're in a leader, when you're a leader, you're you're thrust into situations where you have so much on your plate and you have to decide uh, what's important. And it's not just a matter of deciding what's important, but deciding who's the best person to do that. So for instance, uh, if you have a hundred items that are on your plate, you got to figure out what are the 10 items that are most important. And of those 10, where should I spend my time where versus where shouldn't I spend my time? So speaking from experience, uh, when I was a CEO, uh, I found myself, and I failed to actually manage this effectively, I found myself in situations where I was doing things that I was not particularly good at, and as a byproduct, I wasn't doing things that I was particularly good at. So I think number one is passion, and number two, learn how to swim in your lane. And if you're not great at something, if you're not great at something, you need, need to get great by associating yourself with somebody who is. If it's, in, if it's one of those top 10 items, if you're not great at it yourself, 
you need to become great by outsourcing or associating yourself with an individual or a group of individuals who are in fact great at executing that requirement. Excellent answer. I like that a lot. That the passion is is a is a big thing. Um, it, getting uh, and this is the, the tough part. But um, I know it's something I struggled with when I was young myself. Was that you think that leadership comes with is is a title, right? No. And, and it's not until you get older and more experienced that you learn that holy smokes, Martin Luther King never had a title. Gandhi never had a title. Albert Einstein never had a title yet they were all leaders, right? Eventually they were given titles, right? People say sure. Martin Luther King was the, was the leader of uh, civil rights movement, right? Um, yeah, can I make one more comment on that, Doug? Yeah. Uh, there's another really important trait of a leader. Uh, and I, I, I really think this is, this is essential. A leader needs to have the ability to absorb criticism and to deflect praise. Does yeah. that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because, uh, you know, the difference in a leader and, ego, and an egomaniac is an egomaniac wants to absorb all the praise and take all the credit for what gets done. What a leader does is he or she absorbs the criticism, but then deflects the, the praise because ultimately, you're only going to be as good as the team that works with you, right? Uh, and so, you know, pushing that praise out, deflecting that praise to the team that actually uh, got things done, that to me is another very important trait of a leader, a true leader. Yep. Yep. Uh, reinforcement is a big piece, right? Letting mm -hmm. people know that you appreciate what they do. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, what they do is doesn't go unrecognized. So yeah. um, there's always this controversy that uh, leadership is uh, learned or is it uh, a natural skill? What do you think about that? Um, yeah, you know, it's 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 always uh, is it is it. Is it inherent in an individual's kind of DNA and their genetic makeup, or is it, is it something that can be uh, learned and developed? I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I, th I think I really do. Uh, I'm a better leader now than I was 20 years ago. Uh, I know that, so I've learned some things. A lot of that is, you know, the school of hard knocks, right? So, uh, I've screwed up enough things that I, I, at least I know a, a couple things uh, not to screw up. So it's it's always uh, it's it's always this 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 question mark: is it is it learned or is or is it sort of innate in the individual? I think it really is a combination of both. Uh, I, I I would say that a person has to have at least certain foundational elements in place that are innately ascribed to that person. But I think that those those traits can be improved, they can be refined, uh, and they can be developed. Uh, but, you know, for instance, if you uh, uh, if you lack if you lack personal confidence and you are unwilling to put yourself out there 
that's your sort of innate personality, uh, it's going to be, I think, difficult uh, to be a leader. But I'm going to say that there's a counter to that. Uh, leadership takes a lot of forms. Uh, we always think of the person as, you know, who's, who's in charge, the, the formal leader, as being the leader. But, you know, we take a plant environment, for instance. Uh, you may have, you may have a, a master craftsperson who has absolutely no authority at all, wants absolutely no authority at all. However, the, if something goes wrong at the plant, the plant manager's not going to do anything until he consults with that guy. That's right. power. That's leadership. So leadership takes a, a lot of forms. Uh, sometimes, it it's very, sometimes it's very quiet. Uh, sometimes it's very much behind the scenes. Uh, so I don't think that there's just one definition of leadership. Couldn't agree more. So we're coming to a, a, a time limit here. Um, so okay. the last question I want to ask you about is looking back on your career, what would you say is your greatest success? Mm. Gosh, it's really, really difficult uh, uh, for me to say. Uh, I think that uh, I think that I've you know left my mark. Uh, I'm not the only person that has 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 left my mark. Uh, you know, we obviously learned from from Jack and Ron and, and many others. I learned from Jim Fitch and his father E. C. Fitch, who was the professor at Oklahoma State. Uh, you know, I, I gosh, it's uh, it's really 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 hard hard for me to hard for me to say. Uh, it's been a good career for me. Uh, I'm not done yet. So luckily, I'm. Uh, even though I'm old, I'm, I'm still healthy, and I'm still uh, uh, very, very passionate. Arguably, I'm more passionate than uh, I, I, I was even 15 years ago. I mean, I just, uh, I, I really am. But I think maybe if, if there is one mark I've left, it's, 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 and it's not something that you really put your arms around. But I think my passion for asset management and the benefits of having a reliable plant not just the, the productive production benefits. Uh, I don't think it's, uh, it, there's also safety benefits. There's environmental uh, benefits. I think my passion for what we do hopefully has inspired other people uh, to contribute and participate in our field. And that's really that's, what it's all that's about. Another, it's passing on. That's another, right? And that's another form of leadership. Uh, yeah. So, you know, when I write an article on my my, the, my, the passion in my voice comes through. Uh, you know, I see it on LinkedIn. I see it in emails. That inspires people. And if 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 my writings and you know my various rantings and ravings and preachings and teachings uh, inspire other people, then that's great because uh, all of us is a lot smarter than any one of us. So if if we have a, a large community that's inspired and motivated. Uh, I think that that benefits uh, all of us because, you know, we want safer plants. We want more environmentally conscious plants. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm on a wildfire right now because, you know, when you look at Department of Energy has done research into manufacturing and, you know, we could conceivably, without any new technology, just employing current best practices, uh, we could reduce our energy consumption by between 20 and 23 percent. That's no wild technology. That's just without batting an eye. 
Yeah, okay. without batting an eye. Think of the carbon impact that would have, Doug. Uh, yeah. Never mind. Think. You know, look. Look at our natural gas industry. Three point two percent of our natural gas that we uh, we extract, uh, we process, uh, we transport, we distribute. Three point two percent is lost to fugitive emissions. That's three point two percent of the sales that would not pass through past cost of goods sold. It would go straight to the bottom line, and it would reduce methane being emitted into the atmosphere. And methane is 80 times more powerful a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. So uh, I know I'm old and probably was a little bit too old to get another master's degree, but I'm very passionate uh, about moving forward in this direction and focusing on sustainable manufacturing. And you know, the thing is, a lot of it, a lot of it can be accomplished by better management of our assets. You know, controlling parasitic uh, frictional losses, uh, uh, minimizing fugitive leaks. I mean, think about air leaks, for instance. Yeah. Uh, compressed air leaks. We we probably we probably fugitively emit twenty to thirty percent of the compressed air that we have across all industries. This is very fixable, uh, and so not only do we do better by the environment, but our plants run better and more reliably, and our companies are more profitable and they're safer. So you know, honestly. I'm probably more enthused about asset management right now as we sit here today than I've ever been in terms of the potential that we can have to impact society. Oh, that's a great thing. And Drew, it's been great talking to you. I get to plug my Always book on your, your, your last comment, Clean, Green, and Reliable, that I wrote with Chris Clean, Clean, Olson. So we do share that passion, right? I know we do. I know um, we do. It's one of those things that uh, is – you said it's easy, right? It, it amazes me to see companies just blow it all out, right? And they don't care, right? You, you know, honestly, this, this is not low-hanging fruit. This is fruit that's right. on the ground. It's it's fermenting right. into wine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just walk around and pick it up. It's that yeah. simple. All right. Yeah. So, Drew, Drew, it's been great talking with you and catching Always up with you today. Um, maybe we'll do this again sometime in the near future. Uh, and I look forward to maybe seeing you at a conference. I can tell you that I've cut way back on those, uh, uh, basically more for uh, COVID and health reasons than anything. Uh, yeah. Well, I should also add to the fact that I really don't want any more work than what I have at this point in time. So uh, when you show your well, face, people tend to, tend to think, oh, there's, there's somebody we haven't thought about in a while. Yeah. Dutch ready to work again. Yeah. Uh, that's how it works. Yeah. Well, Doug, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. And uh, uh, honestly, I, I would very much uh, like to, to to see you in person uh, again as soon as possible when it's safe and uh, everything's good for everybody. But uh, yeah, hopefully at a conference in, in the near future, we'll be able to catch up. So until until then, uh, I enjoy our correspondence on, on LinkedIn and on Facebook. And uh, uh, it's always a pleasure to hear from you and see your name pop up. All right. Take care, my friend. You too. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Leadership Connection. We will see you back for another episode next week. In between, we hope to see you in the Mobius Connect community where you can meet Doug and share with other industry professionals at MobiusConnect.com. We'll see you there.